Welcome to this episode of Portraits and Music. I'm Ross Sievertson. And I'm Clay Couturio, music director and conductor of the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. We're here with Nicholas Bardenay uh, from Westwater Arts. Just so excited about uh, talking about the November 4th American Landscapes concert and multimedia show that goes along with it. Maestro, why don't you kick us off and... Sure. Well, uh, I know the orchestra is excited about this concert for the music alone, but also for what Nicholas brings uh, with his visual to the uh, to the performance. So, Nicholas, uh, before we even get into that, can you just tell us a little bit about your yourself, your background, and then how you uh, became interested in doing what you're doing now? Yeah, um, I've been fortunate to, to be a, a visual artist working with orchestras for Gosh, almost 15 years now. I had to do the math recently. <laughs> uh, we lost a couple of years in there, you know, in the performing arts with the pandemic, but yes. we're, we're back, as they say. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a real treat to be able to do this for, for such a long time. And my company, Westwater Arts, has been around for 50 years. Um, and over the, those 50 years, um, I've had the pleasure of doing some of these, but over the cumulative years, we've collaborated with uh, a little over 200 orchestras now. Um, and many on a repeat basis too. So um, definitely have been around the block doing these multimedia photo choreographed uh, performances with orchestras. And every show is different as you as you all are gonna learn um, for this particular concert, every show is different and uh, which makes it really special. And we even have something extra unique for this the show, which I won't reveal the details on that yet. I'll, I'll, we'll sort of ease into that. But- uh, So listeners, you're gonna have to, uh, you're gonna have to come to the concert to, to- <laughs> <laughs> no spoiler alerts here. Nothing will be said during this podcast. No, no. <laughs> no I, I'll, I'll spill the beans a little bit for you all. A little bit later, yes. So, so how, how did you become interested in doing this? Um, you know, life is, life is funny in the way that it works sometimes. I, I just had a, like a natural inclination for, for music and imagery and, mm -hmm. and had a great mentor, James Westwater. And, you know, we worked together for a number of years. He founded the company. Um, Gosh, I guess it would have been 1973 mm -hmm. and uh, started working with orchestras. And, you know, one thing leads to another. And I came on the scene kind of on a full-time basis back in, I think, about 2009 um, and have been at it since then. Um, after James retired, I sort of took the reins and have been doing a lot of extra, uh, extra stuff and new pieces and new collaborations and traveling abroad a bit, uh, which has been nice. And so, yeah, these, these, these concerts are unique because bringing the visual arts together with the, uh, with the musical arts, you, you kind of create this symbiosis that, you know, neither art form can, can create on its own. You, you sort of take the energies from both and something magical happens there, especially in a live, uh, live concert setting where you have this giant screen and I'll, I'll reveal that detail. The screen that I have is 440 square feet um, large and, and it wow. just hangs above the orchestra. It pretty much covers the entire width of the stage. It's a panoramic format, a triptych format. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's definitely a dance of imagery that happens that is very tightly choreographed to the, the musical performance. Um, and, you know, depending on the piece of music we're working with, uh, that, that all varies a little bit. And the topics certainly are all different as you'll, as you'll learn a little bit later in this podcast. Yeah. I, I'm glad you mentioned the screen because I don't want people to think, oh, it's just this little TV screen <laughs> above, you know, the, the brass. 
it is really goes across the entire stage. It's a massive screen. Most definitely. Yeah. And so on this, this concert, we'll have four visual pieces and in my whole repertoire, I have, I believe 16 pieces now and set to the music of about 26 composers. Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of variety in there. There's a lot of moods, a lot of kind of musical qualities that you would find within that repertoire and certainly a lot of different topics as well. And so matching real world subject matter with music that tends to kind of be abstract and provides the emotional basis for how you interpret the imagery in between those two things, you create something really magical and it really can't happen in any other way than doing it in, in a live concert setting with, you know, the energy of an orchestra and all that clay is going to bring to the performance and, you know, everybody being there and bringing all their experiences with them that they, that they take with them from, from life and so on and so forth. And, uh, it's, it's something really unique that I'm, I'm so happy that, uh, you know, we all made it through that period of the pandemic and, mm -hmm. uh, the performing arts are back and we get to do this again for, for the audience. Well, just like every orchestra concert is unique and it's its own live, a live performance is unique in itself. Every performance of when the video or, the, or when the pictures are with the orchestra is unique, like you're saying. I mean, that's part of the performance and how that uh, moves along with the orchestra can change from concert to concert a little bit. It can, but it, it absolutely, it, yeah, it produces its own performance. I was going to ask you, just talk a little bit about the process in which you create what you do. Do you start with uh, an idea in mind and then go for visuals and then try to place music with it? Or do you have a particular piece of music first or what, what's, how do you do what you do? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. It's sort of like the chicken, chicken before the egg. Exactly. Kind of, right. kind of question it. Honestly, it's like the, one of the questions that people are most curious about because they, they want to know sort of where your inspiration comes from and how this, how this all comes together from scratch in a way. And so I would say it happens both ways. Um, sometimes there's more, there's more than one way to cook is what you're saying. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes I have a visual concept in mind and I flute out a piece of music or multiple pieces of music that I feel like match the subject matter, because that's, that's a really important aspect about the choreography. It has to make sense. It has to, the emotional core of the music has to fit. And the pacing of the music has to fit what you're showing visually. Otherwise, there's definitely a disconnect. And so that's that's the first step. I, you know, will query people like like Clay and ask, you know, hey, what what piece of music do you think would be good for this type of subject matter? Um, because they are a walking encyclopedia of music. Um, I know a little bit, too. But, uh, you know, I, I try to go where the where the experts are. And so, you know, I, I ask people questions. Um, I certainly go to lots of concerts where. You know, some of the music that's being performed is not stuff that I'm doing visuals to. And sometimes a piece of music st stands out to me and I, I just make a mental note of that and, you know, shelve it away for later. Um, so that's that's kind of one way it happens where I go and seek out the music. I know the visual subject is, is there and I have to kind of translate that into the music. And then the other way is when there is an existing piece of music and I just know, you know, in my bones that it's going to be a great pairing with X and Y subject matter. And so then I just go about the process of doing that. Sometimes there's a commission where the music is also a given, um, and which we did actually in, in Richardson as well, um, which you'll learn about a little bit later, as long as I'm able to talk about this. Yeah, sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, I'm having fun now, but, um, the, uh, 
And sometimes, yeah, that's a given. And I, you know, study the music, I map it out, and then I have the imagery or I go create the imagery in some cases. And and then, you know, there has to be that synthesis that takes place when the, the two two parts are kind of known. So then then in a sense the imagery is somewhat of the unknown that I have to go create and match with the music. So, you know, it keeps me on my toes. And, you know, I kind of I kind of like being flexible in that way. And it keeps, you know, as as a creative person, it, it's very fulfilling to be able to kind of find these interesting solutions to having one component much more as a given. And then the other you have to sort of uh, jigsaw together, if, if you will, yes. um, and figure out how those two are going to match. And, and before we get off of the subject too far, at, when you when we talk about curating you know your your portion of the performance i think we need to point out that that nicholas is an international photographer he has his photographs hanging in london and los angeles portland hong kong so you know he brings something to the performance that i think is is very unique uh, nicholas let me ask you about <clears throat> Just the music in general with the the photographs, um, we're not using uh, in the business a click track. So it's not that it has to be yeah. exactly precise because that doesn't allow as much breathing room from a musical standpoint. Right. But of course, you know, you and I have discussed and there's a certain tempo you like, a certain feel that you like for the music to, to be so that you know from a visual standpoint what works. So I, um, so, but I still have some freedom as a musician to do ebbs and flows within, within the orchestra itself, just from your perspective, that, that helps. I'm just telling you from a musician, that's a wonderful thing, but from, from your position, how do you feel about that? Using a click track, not using a click track. It's, I think it's, it's a win for everybody, mm -hmm. um, in that way, because for you all, and especially for you, Clay, um, feeling tied to a particular rendition so precisely especially when you're doing something to a film where everyone knows where something's supposed to be happening at x point and the yeah. music has to be at this point and that's a lot of pressure i mean it you, you do it all the time but it's a lot of pressure for both you and the orchestra to match and it's it takes away some of that fluidity um and some of the creativity that you have on your end for the interpretation of the music and so what i try to do is kind of walk the line between having something that's consistent um in the tempo and and also allowing the a little bit of spontaneity there because any live performance of music, um, especially when you're not tied to a click track, you know, the dreaded click track, <laughs> you're right. not the only, only conductor that I've heard talk about it this way, um, is that you can, you know, there's any, any live tempo is going to vary from concert to concert to concert. And so what I do um, to take care of that, Clay and I will, you know, have consulted about the the tempo and he's got some, renditions that I think work particularly well. And then, but in the concert, because, you know, somewhat all bets are off, not, not, not really, because Clay and many conductors have, you know, a metronome in their head and they can, they can follow things very precisely, but um, I live cue everything. And so that takes the question, question mark out. If I were to just show up in Richardson and, uh, you know, even, even with our rehearsals, if I were just to show up and, and, you know, hit play and just let it run, <laughs> not only would I be back there by the projectors biting my nails, but it also just would not be the same experience right. for the audience. Like the, the magic happens by having everything very tightly choreographed and, you know, certain things have to happen at very precise times. And, you know, like the piece 
that I have set to Copeland's Rodeo, for instance. There's a lot of fast-moving things happening in the music and conversely in the imagery. And, you know, if those things aren't matching up, um, you know, some, something is off and it's yes. not the same kind of audience experience. So I take care of that by live cueing everything. So I'm essentially, you know, back with the projectors, um, with my with my finger on the trigger, so to speak, you know, pushing those buttons as, as they make sense. And any given, any given piece has hundreds of transitions in it. So depending on the length and the kind of flow of the tempo and so forth. But um, yeah, so it's, it's a very focused process. And I, in a way I'm sort of like, I'm not up on stage per se, but I'm, I'm following the maestro and clay just like, like a musician would be following, you know, memorizing what's supposed to be happening, what's my role in this, and then, you know, keeping kind of a bird's eye view of what's happening musically and what's happening visually and, you know, that all. And I do it kind of from memory. I'm not following a score, so I just work with the music so much and work with the imagery so much. I know what's supposed to be happening. But that all said, we do have a couple of rehearsals where we work together. Yes. And we, you know, we find that kind of working tempo and I make notes, I share some things where it's necessary with, with the conductor and you know, we find something that we, we kind of meet in the middle and find something. And because there's so much consistency um, from a maestro and from, you know, the orchestra uh, that you can kind of rely upon that over into the concert itself. And so it's, it's a process. It's very organic in a way. And, you know, that that's a big part of the collaboration is is working with, um, you know, the, the conductors to find something that uh, works for both of us and to be honest, I have I've been very pleasantly surprised with how easy it is most of the time to work mm-hmm. with conductors and, and doing that because it, it is a little bit of a sacrifice. You know, it's a, both parties kind of have to sacrifice something, but that's kind of the the realm of the collaboration. And we're, we're creating something together that is intended for the audience and their enjoyment. And, um, you know, when when things are really spot on, which that's what I aim for, um, it's a really, really cool experience for the audience. But that's kind of like life, isn't it? Uh, when there's collaboration, there's give and take on both ends of something. Exactly. Well, that's the definition of synergy, right? The yes. sum is more yep. than the, the the parts. And I should also say, I don't want to give ClickTrack a bad name at all. <laughs> there, uh, it's that's a great that's a great thing to have. I mean, and I've done it in both live performance and, of course, in recordings. Um, and in live performance, it can work fine. It's just. It to me as a musician, I, I want a freedom of tone of sound that can flow within the orchestra. And sometimes when you're concerned about the other, it can work fine. It just affects certain things. Uh, yeah. Of course, in movie making and, and TV and all, they use click track, and but that that's different. If something right. doesn't work right at that moment, you stop and do it again because right. it's all recorded for right. that for right. Right. Uh, right. for the show itself. We don't have that. Uh opportunity yes, right. <laughs> which is which is a good thing yes ultimately yeah. yeah so let's let's delve in just a little bit to some of the the repertoire itself for the, for this concert we have two mm-hmm. uh works by copeland and um one work by dvorak and then one other work we can talk at the end so let's start with mm-hmm. um copeland's lincoln portrait that is of course so, with narrator and and orchestra and then the visual. Just explain a little bit about the visuals, what, what our audience will see in, in this particular work. So the Lincoln portrait piece is fairly unique on the program um, because it uses entirely historic imagery. And all of that imagery is archival imagery, mostly from the Civil War, showcasing um, aspects of the Civil War, as well as Abraham Lincoln and kind of the progression of, of Abraham Lincoln through various portraits and so forth. 
And there is a brief vignette toward the end with the civil rights movement. And uh, the, the piece, the corresponding visual accompaniment that goes with the Lincoln portrait music is called The Eternal Struggle. Mm-hmm. And that was a piece that my predecessor actually put together. Um, it was commissioned, I think, by the uh, Akron Symphony and the Orlando Philharmonic. Um, back, gosh, right around the time of the, the Civil War sesquicentennial. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so that particular piece was all archival imagery. In that case, James curated the imagery from sources like the Library of Congress and the National Archives and put that together. And it's it's powerful. Um, it's it's something that, you know, was a very critical time in this country's history where it was quite divided. And, you know, there are certainly parallels that you can you can look at in the last decade or so sure. again in our country. Um, but it's, and the music itself is just, it just, it leaves a strong impression, um, in a, in a very good way. And having a narrator, having the the words of Lincoln, um, to back all of that and to add voice to all of that really creates a, um, a a powerful concert experience. Um, and I think people are going to be really touched by, by that performance. It's, it's something that has seen a lot of performances also through in various parts of the country, North and South, so to speak, and, uh, East and West. And, um, and, you know, the choice of the narrator and the, the, the weight that that gives the performance to is just, it's, it's quite unique. I think I, I like the aspect of the narrator as yes. part of that. It's one of the few pieces that I have worked with that has this element to it. And it, it definitely adds an extra je ne sais quoi to the, to the performance. And our narrator, um, Many of our audience may recognize his voice. Uh, he he worked for WRR for several years. His name is Barry Samsula. Just a wonderful voice for, of course, for radios. That, yes. That's why they hired him there. But uh, <laughs> very powerful uh, and very meaningful the way he he portrays and says the words of Lincoln in this work. Well, and and Barry is is iconic. Uh, or his voice is iconic. Yes, uh, to everybody in North Texas who has listened to any type of broadcast, because while he may, you know, have been with WRR, it, certainly he's done other things. Exactly, his voice is well recognized. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the other Copeland work. Why don't we talk a little bit about that, Nicholas? Yeah, absolutely. And that that shifts gears entirely. And I. I believe, Clay, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that's our closer on the program. That's which is correct. A, a very fitting closer, and that is Copeland's Rodeo yes. or Rodeo. You know, we, we can, can pronounce, pronounce it either ways. way. <laughs> exactly. Um, the piece that, it, that I created that is called Rodeo with an exclamation mark because it's, you know, we need to uh, indicate that there's some action here. And uh, what, what happens in this particular piece is um, it shows a small town rodeo um, atmosphere complete with all the the trappings of a small town rodeo and the the activities of small town rodeo um, set to that music and there there are two the the copeland the copeland music in this case is quite quite nice because it has four movements and two of the movements are kind of exactly two two of them are slow and melodic and sweeping and big and grand and all of these these good characteristics where you can kind of get lost in the music, um, and then two of them, one for sure everybody knows the hoedown, are very energetic and fast paced, and uh, they have a little bit of comedy to them as well in in a way. Um, 
And, uh, and those, because I had those four different sections to work with, there's a lot of uh, flow between those, those, those sections and, and from a visual perspective. And so in the slower movements, you'll see big sweeping Western landscapes, kind of vestiges of early ranches, mm -hmm. um, including some, some contemporary ones. Um, that kind of slower pace of life, you know, living out on, on the land type of um, way of being, which I think is important to the, certainly to the Texan character, but also I think to the American character, that kind of rugged individualist quality that we, we embody uh, <laughs> for better or worse. Yes. yes. Um, and it's, and it's one of those things that I think, you know, the West, there, there are a few reasons for it, but the West and the kind of the, the settling of the West, if you want to call it that, and this kind of, rugged independence that happened in this this realm and you know people having to um uh eke out a living in the in fairly difficult settings um difficult natural settings you know the piece is a little bit of a tribute to some of these things not necessarily in the in the difficulty sense but it showcases aspects aspects of this and like some of the places where where people have set up shop and and then so you have that as a backdrop kind of these big blue sky sweeping western arid landscapes and then the two fast movements are jam-packed with all sorts of cool things happening at a small town rodeo not one of these big kind of commercial rodeos but this particular rodeo actually a dovetailed um photography that that both james and i were doing um when we we had a commission for the grand canyon suite um back in, I think it was 2012, um, mm -hmm. for the Arizona Centennial. And so we were photographing imagery in the Grand Canyon and then stumbled across this great opportunity to photograph a, a small town rodeo in Williams, Arizona, which is kind of like the gateway city to the Grand Canyon. Yes. And it's, it was called the Cowpunchers Rodeo and it, it still goes on. It's, it's a really cool event and it's just basically like locals from the region, not just Arizona, but other places um kind of strutting their strutting their stuff there they mostly all just come from ranch families and that kind of that background and so they're just going and competing and you know socializing as people do and it's it's kind of like a sporting event but a very low-key um you know amateur sporting event where it's mainly about bragging rights <laughs> i love how you describe that and uh, it's a real rodeo this is not your urban cowboy rodeo no, this is no. the real the real thing yeah, absolutely. And, um, I, and because of that, yeah, mm -hmm. I got to get up close and personal and photograph in ways that you, I don't think you'd be able to pull off without a lot of permission. Exactly. <laughs> at a, uh, at a very commercial, you know, rodeo in a stadium or something like that. I was definitely able to get in the shoots essentially and photograph. So the, the material that you'll see in those two faster movements definitely are more authentic to that kind of experience. Um, and there's a lot of fun stuff in there too. I think, you know, people of all ages really get a lot out of these, that particular piece in particular. There's a lot of, because the, the folks that come to that rodeo and, you know, there are other rodeos like this scattered around the country too. They're, they're all from different age groups there. There's a lot of kids that are doing their thing. They participate in the events. And actually the really neat thing is that I want to point out is there are a lot of women also participating mm -hmm. in all of these events. They're doing exactly the same thing as the men. Um, they oftentimes hold leadership roles, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so 
that's something that I think can go overlooked that, you know, rodeo is a, is a very macho kind of sport and it doesn't have to be that way. And actually in, in the case of this kind of community oriented type of rodeo, it isn't, um, you know, the whole family comes family. and they, they participate Absolutely. in there. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's, that's something that I think will be cool for the audience to, to pay attention to those that are listening today um, when they come to the concert. And I was looking through some of the images that you, you will use in the, in the closer of the concert. And I mean, that rodeo, that small town rodeo is about as a slice of Americana, you know, as, as representative of America yeah. uh, as, as you really get. Um, and Nicholas, I really like how you describe and portray in words this visual because I could, I was just closing my eyes thinking about that, and I would say the same thing when I'm describing the music itself, Copeland's music. Oh, right. Yes, So absolutely. the visual does go, when you're talking about the, the big Americana landscape, uh, the way you described it, he portrays that through music, through the intervals that he chooses and, and, and the, the harmony, the open fifths. Um, that's why he's, that's, he's, he's just great at what he did, Copeland, just being yeah. able to, to, to pro provide description with sound. Absolutely. And it fits really well with kind of the everyday person. Yes. And I think that's another thing. A lot of Copeland's music, you know, it, it, it sampled from various folk melodies and so forth. And I think there's something really special to that, how it translates into his larger, larger works like, like Rodeo. You can, you, can, you can get a sense of that. I know he wrote it for a ballet originally, but you yes. can get a sense of Copeland's background. And he was definitely a humanist. And so that comes out in really interesting ways, I think, for something, for a topic like this, that, you know, it would be easy to write off as, you know, this is a rodeo or that is a rodeo. But I think, I think there's something really kind of authentic and sincere about, you know, this community of people coming together and, and doing, doing their thing. And this is their, this is their culture. This is their background. And certainly that's, that's the case in, other parts of Texas as well, um, and traditionally, for sure, in Texas. Yes. So another work on, on the program is uh, one movement from a very uh, well-known work. Uh, it's by Dvorak. It's his slow movement of his New World Symphony, From the New World is the, the real title, Symphony Number no. 9 in E minor, From the New World. It's the second movement. Uh, the tempo marking is Largo. And it has a very famous English horn solo, uh, probably the most famous tune out of that entire work. Uh, Dvorak, of course, he uh, is Czech, but he came and he moved to the United States and lived in New York and wanted to promote American music. He thought it was because he was all about promoting music of your own country. And at the time, he was just happened to be in America, so he was going to promote that. Uh, he was trying to do that using folk tunes, uh, uh, and so he tried his best to listen to different types of American Indian music, but uh, also uh, uh, black spirituals and things of that nature. He ended up using a tune that people called Going Home. Uh, it's, it's not an authentic, real uh, folk tune, but it sounds like that, and people because it sounded like that, it ended up people thinking of that, which is fine. Uh, tell us a little bit about the visual for the slow movement from the New World Symphony. So in the same way that people recognize for sure the hoedown, once they hear it, they're going to know it, they're going to recognize Dvorak's Largo. It's such a well-known and beautiful standalone, even though it's part of a greater work, standalone piece of music. 
um, that just kind of gets you at the core. Yes. And it's a very kind of opposite end of the spectrum from like Down musically. Um, it has this very, how should I say, nostalgic. There's a little bit of melancholy. Absolutely. There's, Good word. Yeah. There's this, there's this kind of quality about it that just feels very innocent and sacred and all, all of these really interesting kind of deeper, profound uh, emotions that we experience as humans. Um, I think Dvorak really hit on something with that particular movement in that larger work. And so because of that, you know, it has this sort of universal quality to it. You could perform that particular piece of music in many, many different settings yes. and it would have different characters to it. Another, another work that it comes to mind is Barbara's Adagio for mm -hmm. strings. And that, that has a similar kind of universal quality. And there, there are certainly other pieces of music in the symphonic realm, but there's, there's a few, there's a few that stand out, and the Dvorak Largo is is one of those. And so, in the case of the visual accompaniment that goes with that, is a piece that I created called National Park Suite, and I originally created it to uh, celebrate the centennial of the National Park Service. It actually premiered with the National Symphony at the Wolf Trap um, National Park, which is neat for the performing arts, back in 2016. And that piece is a montage of all sorts of different uh, national parks and national monuments spread across the country. Um, and there's something, I think, really special about the national park system in that everyone in the audience is going to be able to identify with that subject matter in mm -hmm. some form, whether they travel to certain places as a kid, whether they take their grandkids there whether they, they go on large hiking expeditions in the Grand Canyon, you know, all of these, yeah. all of these things. There are lots of different takeaways from that. And everyone, I would not be surprised if we have lots of folks after the concert that come up and chat with me, and I hope they do, about their personal experiences with the national park system. Um, because it's a, very, it's a very American thing, Absolutely. Um, for one. And it was a, an amazing export the national park idea that has spread across multiple other countries, but it actually started with Yellowstone national park was the first national park in the world. Um, and this idea of protecting land for, for land's sake, but also for, for people to recreate and, and to get out of the cities and enjoy wild nature, um, is, is something that's really, that's a really special and very democratic concept. Um, and, I think American to the core in this in this regard. Well, just the way so, our our country was was built. I just think about the owning land was. I mean, still is a a huge thing. But but yeah. back then, just the idea concept of owning land, or there were times where they would just go out and claim this land, and then they would yeah. buy it after they claimed it. But uh, that, that's a huge concept in itself. That's very American it is. in our history. To set aside, you know, public, quote unquote, property um, in this way that could be, quote unquote, valuable in other ways yes. um, for development is, is, a, is a profound, <laughs> profound thing exactly. in a capitalistic country. Um, and so these spaces are, are sacred. And they're actually, if you go beyond that level, too, um, it's not necessarily fully fleshed out in this particular concert, but if the national parks as they are today were also sacred to a lot of Native American tribes too. Exactly. And so they were they were special places well before we proclaimed them as national we're, parks. We're here. Yes, and that's right. For life giving ways, you know, there may like Yellowstone, for instance, there may have been 
very large herds of, of game that, that passed through these areas that people would um, traditionally have followed their path for hunting purposes. But also, you know, there are also places like Yosemite that were sacred um, or there, you know, the Black Hills where Mount Rushmore is a very mm-hmm. sacred place. Um, not just because there is a, you know, a designation that it is a national park, but these were places that had special natural qualities, um, natural and or life-giving or spiritual qualities that uh, preceded this whole concept of the national park. So there's there's an extra layer there. But I think when you when you pair this the sum total of all of this with music by Dvorak, which has kind of a spiritual life to it, I would say, mm-hmm. um, it it creates this sort of sacredness. Um, which I think is appropriate for the subject matter. These these places are sacred, yep. and in many different ways. I mean, you can define sacred as as a lot of different things, and it's very oftentimes a personal experience that I think a lot of the audience will have. And um, and so the as the as the music ebbs and flows, and and has this this very kind of nice emotional arc throughout. Um, you're also going to see 30 plus national parks and national monuments that people will definitely recognize. Some of them, they may not have clued into the fact that they're national parks or may have forgotten about them as mm-hmm. being national parks. And there's a few layers to what a national park and or national monument is, too, because sometimes battlefields right. are represented by the National Park Service and also Native American sites like mm-hmm. like the Anasazi sites or the ancestral Puebloan sites in the Southwest. And you'll actually see a short vignette of that, like Mesa Verde, for instance, in Chaco Canyon. And these places are also under the wing of the National Park Service. So it covers a lot of different, different gamuts um, that make it really special. And I tried my best to kind of showcase some of that variety um, of different, not only different regions, but also some of the very different landscapes that we have in this country, which is <laughs> considering, you know, the, the, it's a very large country that we live in. And it, it has a lot of differences in geography and topography and climate and all of these things. And it's really, really well represented by the national park system that a we lot, have. A lot of diversity. So yeah. I, I know we're skipping around as far as the order of the program, but I, I kind of did that on purpose. But uh, another work that we're going to be performing uh, is a work called Continuum. And this is a, a work by a very good friend of mine. His name is Christopher Farrell. And he is a violist, actually, in the National, or excuse me, in the Nashville Symphony. He's been there for years. And they, last season, had their 75th anniversary, I believe. And so they commissioned him to write a, a orchestral work for that event. And it was very successful. Like I said, I've known him since uh, I was in seventh grade. It's been really? a long time. Yes. <laughs> Lifelong. Friend. Yes. And um, always knew he was so talented as a composer too. Um, that's just its own talent in itself. But that was such a success. <clears throat> and then this uh, collaboration with Nicholas came along and I thought this this particular piece of music could go really well with what I'm going to ask Nicholas to talk about in just a minute, but let me just describe a little bit about this work, Continuum. Um, it occurred to Chris uh, when he compared the history of an orchestra to what happens to all of us in our individual lives. So he defines Continuum as a course of events that changes, sometimes imperceptibly, uh, such that when you get to another point down the line and you look back, you see that things have changed drastically 
but you didn't realize it when that was happening at that time. And so for an orchestra, the orchestra also has a life like that, and it uh, and the changes it undergoes manifest in, in a new present. So just like people and their experiences, it's uh, an orchestra is an organization that has a life that changes by, by people and events involved in it. So uh, when it goes on and continues, hopefully that's in a good way, of course. So music is a good medium for conveying that idea because you can take a melody, a melodic line, and bring new perspectives to what it is and where it's going. And that was his core idea of, of continuum. I love that. So we're going to play this. And Nicholas, I want you to describe what the visuals for this work is going to be. This is a unique idea that I do with orchestras from time to time. And every project is, is absolutely special, um, where the community is asked to submit photos to the orchestra that eventually come to me and I curate them and pair them together with a piece of music. And so it's, it's kind of the ultimate form of a collaboration. It's sort of a meta collaboration because we are not only is it, is it myself working with the orchestra, but we're also working with the community mm -hmm. and various partners in the community to bring this about. And so it can't happen otherwise. Like it, it, it has to kind of spread like wildfire and you get these photo submissions and you have these excited partners and sponsors sometimes and so on and so forth. And then we bring it all together and perform it live in concert. Um, so kind of creating something really specially unique that also is locally inspired and locally submitted. And so in this case, um, we started talking about this, gosh, maybe close to two years ago, I'd say ish. Yes. Um, starting, starting to kind of, frame the idea of what this project would look like and what the music would look like. And it took a while for us to land on the music. And I'm really happy with this continuum uh, piece of music. Um, it's, it's, I can easily see what Clay is talking about and the talent of the, of the composer as well. And all of that really shines through. And it has such a cool thematic arc to it. Um, and so what makes this project special and that is very relevant to this particular piece of music is that we're doing something in a then and now type of format. And so Richardson as a city and the people in Richardson and everything about Richardson has changed a lot over the past, let's say 50 to 60 years. But the cool thing is there's actually photo archives going back to the late 1800s. Yes, because this, this past summer was the 100th anniversary. 100, of, 150. 150, yep. excuse me, of, of the city of Richardson. That's right, yeah. yes. Yeah. And so kind of framed around this idea of the 150th, not necessarily tied to it, but framed around it. And you have this incredible archive of imagery um, of historic things showing what Richardson looked like, the homes, the people, the, the, the environment, um, well, well, well before it became, you know, a, an extension of the Dallas Metroplex. It was, it was certainly its own thing. Um, and kind of a frontier town, if you will. Um, it was definitely hard scrabble, hard scrabble folks <laughs> making <laughs> making ends meet out there. Just like we were talking about with the rodeo piece, you know, that was not an easy environment to to make it work um, back in the day. And so, what's really cool is we have all of this imagery that that documents that. And so, part of this concept with the the Richardson then and now piece set to the continuum music is that you know about half of the piece shows Richardson of the past. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't necessarily mean from the late 1800s. It can certainly be in the 50s, 60s, 70s, et cetera. You know, 
just Richardson of the past and sort of a progression of that to show the growth of the city and, you know, what people have been up to. And interestingly, and not, not surprisingly, you know, people are people are people. Like people have generally always been about the same, same motivations. They certainly wear <laughs> different, different outfits depending on the era of time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be fascinating for the audiences as well to see just sort of the period, we'll call it costumery, even though that was just what people were wearing of the day. And, um, you know, what people were driving, the technology and all of these things have certainly changed. But, you know, people are generally the same. And the people that live in, in Richardson nowadays have kind of the same values and motivations and backbone, if you will, of what people in Richardson 100 years ago were like, in a way. Um, so that, that I try to pay special attention to and make kind of these cross-connection parallels to. And with that, I should say that, you know, the other half of the imagery is all contemporary submissions, present day imagery showing mm-hmm. Richardson, the city itself, parks, what people are doing, different activities, sports. Um, the, the, the photos came from all sorts of different sources. And, um, and so there's lots of different perspectives on what it means to live in Richardson um, nowadays. But you'll, you'll see when you, when you see the piece and hear the piece, um, that there are a lot of these really cool parallels. And I, I, I really hope that people pay close attention to that too, because that's what it makes it really special. There's a, there's a continuum, if you will, of, of this kind of life in Richardson. And it, it definitely has taken many different forms. And certainly Richardson of today is much more high tech and, and modern, et cetera, et cetera, than it, than someone would have portrayed it or seen it back in the late 1800s. But, um, it's, it's really neat to have a sense of context. And I think in the idea, if we were to frame that of the broader concert theme of American landscapes, you know, there, there are lots of different Americas, so to speak. Um, it's such a large country. What it means to be American means many different things to many different people. And so this is a very localized version of what it means to be in America in Richardson um, in this particular time and place and also reflecting on the past. And the music and the imagery just, you know, I'm really, really happy that we landed on that piece of music, the continuum piece, because it's, it, it really does a great job at fleshing out these different concepts, almost, you know, like it was created for this purpose, <laughs> right? <laughs> but it wasn't, no, that's, it works out for the best, right? Sometimes that's great. Yeah. Maybe you had a conversation back in the seventh grade play. Um, <laughs> that was a different conversation, you know, but that's, yeah. Yeah. Later, later, you know. Few decades from now, I'm going to I'm going to need this piece of music. I'm just planting a seed right now. But there you go. However, <laughs> however, it came about, like it, it fits really well, and I think just the sum total of the experience in the context of the broader concert too is just it creates something that's I think the audience is really going to enjoy. Like these, the pieces that I talked about before, the other three pieces, the audience will definitely get something out of those individually. Um, but I think as a collective and as a, as an experience of someone that lives in Richardson or the direct surroundings of Richardson, I think this is going to be something that's extra special. And you just, you really can't see it anywhere else. It's yes, not possible. Right. This, this is, is a, really unique. Yes. Correct. And if you miss this, then you, you probably won't ever see it again because yeah, right. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a unique once in a lifetime kind of experience to show Richardson of the past and Richardson of the present. And I think people are going to feel really good about that. And, you know, backed by the energy of a live orchestra and all that comes with that and the beautiful concert hall as well um, on this giant screen is, is going to be quite unique. 
Well, you've got you've got me very excited. I'm ready to work right now. So uh, good. <laughs> uh, listen, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, it's been wonderful to talk to you. We're uh, I'm actually looking at some of your equipment where we're where we are recording right now. Some of oh. the equipment's right here. <laughs> yep, and so, it's, it's been living there. Yeah, it's been living there. So uh, I know the orchestra is going to have a great time doing this, and uh, we look forward to the concert on Saturday, November fourth, seven thirty p.m. at the Eisman Center. Nicholas, thank you so much. Nicholas, yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you both. And hope to hope to meet you all at the concert. We'd like to thank our podcast sponsors, Humanities of Texas, the Ray Charitable Trust, and Frost Bank. I want to remind everyone that tickets are available at the Eisman Center ticket office and on their website at EismanCenter.com. Maestro, thank you. It's always great to chat with you. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to Portraits and Music with Maestro Clay Cattorio. I'm your producer and co-host, Ross Sievertson. Remember, if you haven't done so already, hit that subscribe button so you can get new episodes downloaded to you automatically. Reviews and ratings are always appreciated, and it helps us to provide you with more great inside conversations from the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. Until next time.